Podcast sitting here Sunday, January 19th, only eight weeks till Selection Sunday. And this is when it feels like a lot of people start shifting more of that attention to college basketball, now one week removed from college football. Looking at those uh, basketball resumes, looking at that bubble, refreshing bracketology every day. If you haven't, hey, by the way, if you haven't been to bracketmatrix.com, check it out. I think that there are only I don't know, three or four maybe analysts who actually analyze the bracket, analyze the historical trends of the committee, all those metrics. So so you don't really need that many bracketology projections to give you an idea of the bracket, where your team sits. But still, check out Bracket Matrix if you haven't. They have several dozen projections put into the table. I just pulled it up, and as of today, it's 82 projections as of today. And you can see, like, for example... Pulling a bubble team here, uh, like a Georgetown, they're in the field on 55 of those 82 brackets, an average seed of 11. So you can see what seed they are. Highest is an 8, lowest is a 12, and then in 27 of those brackets, they're not even in the field. Check it out, Bracket Matrix. It's really cool. Eight weeks until Selection Sunday. This will be the, the first basketball episode of High Motor in quite a while. This is not the end of college football for the time being, like last year. We'll still do a ton of college football stuff throughout the offseason, sprinkled in with some basketball stuff. And that sprinkle today, we have John Fanta, Fox Sports College basketball commentator, Big East Digital Network. He's back. John, so good to have you back on the show. I think we exchanged some text over the offseason maybe, but I don't think we really had a, a time to chat since the Final Four. How's the season going for you so far? Andrew, it's been awesome. And uh, that Final Four in Minnesota was really cool. Now in the thick of things here, everything's going great. You know, you think about the sport this year, it's even more wide open than what we've seen in the past couple of years to think that we had a, a season where Loyola Chicago made it to the Final Four. And I would argue that there's a chance for one of those types of teams, if not another, to make a deep run. You can't ask for much better than that. The parody just off the charts in this sport. So it's been a fun ride thus far. Can't wait for what's in store here in the next couple months. So when we were texting, I think it was last week setting this up, you, you were struggling with the, the word formation on your end. You apologized saying that you were mid-game, multitasking while calling a game. Is that just something that, that comes with experience, or am I completely overthinking you texting while calling a game? <laughs> I've got my Mac laptop uh, on me at the table sometimes. So if you message me and I know we had something going on, when we're into a media timeout or, or we're into a stoppage, um, I, I'm able to, to shoot off a quick note. You know, there, there goes all those keyboard lessons that you learn in fourth and fifth grade and you're sitting there at one point thinking, what, what am I going to use these for? And then you think, okay, well, this, this, this is it. So, yes, 
we I did shoot you a text during a game I was calling. I, I don't know what I don't know what you want to call it. Maybe the Swiss Army knife in me, but uh, but hey, we, we got it done. Have you ever had to? This is something I love asking commentators. I don't know why. I just think it's fascinating. Have you ever had to use the bathroom during a game? Like, is the timeout enough time for you, or do you have to wait to halftime to use the bathroom? I have had to use the restroom during a game, and my analyst on this game had done play-by-play before, made me more comfortable to use the restroom in case we got back from break and he needed to take a minute or whatever, 90 seconds of of some of the play-by-play. So I have had to do it before. uh, And the restroom, this was not good. The restroom was not near the actual press box. What game was it? Do you remember? I was calling softball for Fox a couple years ago and the restroom was downstairs. Um, so I had to run and just, you know, Hey, when you gotta go, you gotta go and, uh, made it back up. I think a batter into the inning. So after, after one at bat, so basketball, I've been okay for whatever reason, I've been okay. Maybe it's just the way that the sport is paced, but I think to myself, like college football, your restroom better be near your broadcaster because those games are going three and a half, four hours. I mean, you can't tell me that Chris Fowler didn't have to use the restroom at some point in that four hour and change marathon. So you mentioned that in that case, your analyst was comfortable. Is there someone like available? If you can't call a game, like you get to the arena and you feel like trash, is there somebody available on call? I guess geographically, maybe it depends on where you are, but is there, do they have a backup plan? Like if you can't call a game an hour before? That's a great question. And that is in case that that's in place sometimes if you're local. So I'm in New Jersey. There's plenty of of talent that's within earshot to to get to the location of the game to call it if there's enough notice. Now, of course, if you show up to the game and you're not feeling well at the at the game, there's been commentators who have been, who have gotten their way through a game while also getting sick at times. It's it's happened. I mean. I don't want to get graphic, but you, you can connect the dots there of, hey, you got to get the trash can out and just figure your way through the game. But I, I've seen commentators last summer. I was working an event down in Florida and, and uh, a commentator had, had gotten ill during the game. Well, in that case, the sideline reporter came over and, and filled the spot as the analyst during the broadcast. So you, you just have to figure it out. But Andrew, the, the point here is, no, not always. Like, if you're in a location where there's really not a lot of talent, you've got to do a couple things. You've got to see if you could find that that rabbit in the hole of somebody who can fill the fill the slot, or you use someone from media relations or someone that knows about the team that could slide over and be in the broadcast role uh, on the game day. Like, that's the only way. Um, but some of the best opportunities for broadcasters have come when filling in on a game. In fact, there's a story I've always been told that Doris Burke actually filled in on a game at Providence on ESPN years ago. Now Doris played at Providence in the eighties. She's one of their best players ever. And Providence had a game at a men's game at the Dunkin' Donuts Center. And whoever their analyst was called out. And they were looking, 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 couldn't find anybody. And Doris had done some women's games for Providence, but never a high-profile ESPN game. And they said, uh, Doris, can you do it? 
And she came in and did it, and the rest is history. Now she's one of the voices of basketball. What was she doing? Was she sideline reporting at that game? I think she was just helping out. Wasn't even supposed to be on air. When I was asking that question, I'm thinking, and I don't think you've done like a game at Washington State, for example, but like you're in Pullman, Washington, or like in Spokane, or even like Bo- Boise or something. I can't imagine with all the Morgantown. Res- right, yeah, with all due respect to the, the fine people of Morgantown or Pullman, I can't imagine there's a whole lot of, of, of on-air talent that can that can hop in. Yeah, so I want to get to some hoop stuff here. We haven't really chatted since, since that Final Four uh, I know that there wasn't a Big East team, but you were still out there. And going back now, Villanova, looking back, at, they're the only Big East team to to make it since the, the Big Big East looked a lot different back in the day. Uh, Louisville, Syracuse, and actually looking at it now, Butler, you know, had those, but not as a Big East member. And you really have to go back to to Georgetown, back to Georgetown, thirteen years ago, the last current Big East member in the Final Four, not named Villanova. Anyway, I mean, as you well know, predicting Final Four teams before the bracket is, is even revealed as foolish because it's all about those matchups. But still, you know, what Big East team this year do you think is best equipped to, to, to battle those different matchups and actually make the Final Four this year? Seton Hall. They have one of, if not the best player in the sport, in Miles Powell, the senior guard, who can score the basketball with anybody. If you need a bucket, he's going to give you that bucket. So you've got to stop. You've got somebody who can carry you. On top of that, you have rim protection. They average six blocks per game as a team, and right now they're hitting that average game in, game out, if not more than that. In fact, against St. John's on Saturday, Romaro Gill had six blocks by himself. So Kevin Willard doesn't have one. He has two seven-footers. He's got Roe Gill. He's got Ike Obiagu, the Florida State transfer, who's a sophomore. So Willard's got rim protection. They defend very well. Seton Hall's always been pretty solid defensively. But the difference for this Seton Hall team, all of a sudden, Andrew, they've won eight in a row, and they're doing it without their second-best player in Sandro Mamoukelashvili, the six foot ten junior, who is a really versatile piece for them. You've got Quincy McKnight, who's developed and who's second in the Big East with nearly five assists per game. Gill is scoring the basketball better, and Jared Roden, a sophomore wing, along with a freshman and Tyree Samuel, are contributing. I think Seton Hall could have the complete package to make a run to Atlanta. The dream is there. I'm not saying they're going to go there, but I'm saying there are pieces in the sport this year for them where the honest expectation isn't just, oh, they could win a game or two in the NCAA tournament, but they really have the identity of a team that has no holes. And I'm not sure, and Miles Powell told me this on Saturday, he said, because of the non-conference schedule we played, there's nothing that a team could throw at us that really surprises us. Seton Hall played a really challenging non-conference schedule. Michigan State, Oregon, Iowa State twice, once on the road, once on a neutral floor. Maryland as well, and that was a win. At Rutgers, and they've got the resume to prove it, Andrew, a combined nine quadrant one or quadrant two wins. That's tied for the most in the country. I think the Pirates, the dream is alive to go to Atlanta. 
Staying with Seton Hall there, and I think the last time that you were on it was like the day after the Final Four, and it was right after Kevin Willard had said no to Virginia Tech, and now coming back, um, I mean, they're I'm barring something drastic here. They're going to have the fifth straight 20-win season. They could make the Final Four run. Um, it's it's very reasonable to assume that the calls for him just won't stop. So do you think Seton Hall can hang on to him? Do you see any potential openings this cycle that would be big enough to lure him away? Well, that's the, the big question is, is there an opening that would be, that would suffice for him to leave Seton Hall? Virginia Tech was willing to put out more money than Seton Hall did, and Kevin Willard turned that down. He's got two boys. He's got a, a wonderful wife and lives in a wonderful neighborhood in Westfield, New Jersey. And family matters to Kevin Willard. There was a, a Dana O'Neill piece in The Athletic last week that talked about this and his evolution at Seton Hall. Andrew, there's not many coaches that fit their respective school the way that Kevin Willard fits Seton Hall. He, he just has a fit there. Now, could he move on? Absolutely. If Maryland ever got rid of Mark Turgeon or ever moved on from Mark Turgeon, that could be a job that Kevin Willard would want. Jeff Capel, uh, or, or at least would be in contention for. Uh, Jeff Capel at Pittsburgh. Kevin Willard played there for his dad, Ralph. That could be a job that, that could come up. You never know if that ever came up. But the question always is, is there a job that would open up? Like Boston College, if they end up making a change at some point, I don't know. Is Boston College a better job than Seton Hall? I, I'm not so sure about that. You also have to keep in mind, maybe five years ago, where we would have said Kevin Willard could, would leave, he's now about to go to his fifth straight NCAA tournament. And Andrew, he's doing it in a conference where Jay Wright, Ed Cooley, Greg McDermott, now Danny Hurley coming in next year with UConn, those are big brand name coaches. And I think the optics of that matter for Kevin Willard. So Seton Hall's a really difficult job, but Kevin Willard has done a, a great job elevating it and making it more of a destination. So do I think that he's for sure gone if they make the Sweet 16 this year? Well, I, I don't want to say that because I'm not exactly sure where you go when you've got two kids, you've got a family. Of course, a place could put up more money, but it's, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. I would say right now, I was asked this yesterday who coaches Seton Hall next year, and I still said Kevin Willard because I think it's just too tough to, to figure out what job's open that, that got the natural landing spot for him. In your conversations around that region, do you get the feeling that, that Kevin Willard – I mean, I, it depends on – I mean, like for example, I was talking to a buddy the other day, and it was right after the, the Bill Self Spurs um, you know, rumor and report came out that maybe he'd be interested in that job. Who might replace him if he leaves? We were talking about all that stuff, and we were looking around – college basketball and purely speculations. There isn't any sort of news or any sort of inside information here saying, you know, who who are the guys that, that seem semi-attainable across college basketball? And it seems like Kevin Willard is one of those guys. Like you said, maybe if Maryland opens up, you know, talking, talking to people around the Northeast, do you get the feeling that, that Kevin Willard is kind of the potentially semi-attainable name out there right now? I do. I mean, I, I do think that that's a, that's a good point by you. I, I think that that's, that's certainly a, a possibility. And, and, and because of where he's at in Seton Hall, 
Seton Hall is ninth or tenth in the Big East in terms of resources. This is not an easy job, and he has he's made it look easy here over the last half decade. So I think about that, and I, I do think, yeah, he is an attainable name on the list. Yeah, and like you said, Seton Hall now, you know, barring a, a dramatic collapse, going to their fifth straight tournament, five straight twenty win seasons. Who's next in the Big East? Like, who's that that next Big East team to start ripping off the 21 season? I get the question. Maybe the question here is, who's really the, the sleeper in this conference that could emerge as this consistent 21 team over the next four or five years? I'll tell you what. Creighton is a program that has actually done it over the last two decades and change. I mean, they, they've had 21 seasons in every season the last two decades, but two or three. So... They're a program that's that's done that year in and year out. I, I think that Xavier, the way that they've fallen off a little bit here over the last two years is pretty shocking. They're recruiting like a program that can get to 20 wins, but they're not playing like it right now with the group that they have. I think that they're only bound to get back there. Remember, Andrew, they went to the Elite Eight a couple years ago and have been the team that's been closest to the Final Four in the Big East besides Villanova. Those two schools come to mind. I also want to throw one more out at you just because I think that there's, that there's room for them to grow and people are going to write them off after this season. Marquette. Marquette is a program that's going to lose Marcus Howard and everybody's going to say, okay, well, you know, they didn't end up really capitalizing with him. Now, if Marquette doesn't win an NCAA tournament game when Marcus Howard's there, that's going to be tough for them to swallow. That that really is. I, in my opinion, they, they've got to win a tournament game here this March. I'm not saying they're going to Sweet 16. I wouldn't put them in that category. But this this is a program that you can't have a player as good as him and not get an NCAA tournament. We will see what happens. But they've Marquette's got a good freshman class coming in. Uh, they've got a target, Justin Lewis, who's a power forward, four-star kid top 100 kid who's really talented. You're going to have Kobe McEwen, the Utah State transfer, coming back. They really like Simeon Torrance, the freshman point guard, who has played here and there because of the fact Howard, he's your lead guy. So I think about this Marquette team, I really like the the way that the program could go. I think a lot of people are going to write them off, could say they'll take a step back. I think Steve Wojciechowski has something to prove there. And as he continues to get his type of players, their style may change. They're going to become more defensively oriented. But I wouldn't just sit here and say, oh, the Golden Eagles are are going to be done next year. I think that they could surprise a lot of people and still be a program with their resources and with their recruiting that can get into that 20-win column. John, last thing for you, one of the programs that we haven't touched on, going back to another coaching thing last spring, you were all over the St. John search, grabbing Mike Anderson eventually after those years at Arkansas. Um, I think they're one in four or one in five in Big East play. I'm not sure. Uh, a lot of those losses. One in five. Yeah, one in five had that close Butler loss. Then I think you said you called that, that Seton Hall game uh, yesterday or a couple days ago. What is the feeling around Mike Anderson. I know that that hire got a lot of criticism saying, you know, he wasn't this this New York guy. I'm not sure about the fit there. Now, what are we, I don't know, 20 games into it, 15, 20 games into it. What is the feeling around Mike Anderson at St. John's? Are people happy with what he's doing there? Or is there some skepticism still that he's actually the right fit for the Red Storm? 
Well, I think at St. John's, there was elation after non-conference play. The Red Storm has two great quad one wins, one over West Virginia at Madison Square Garden. West Virginia has had quite the resume, and another against Arizona on a neutral floor out in Los Angeles, and they did that without Mustafa Heron. So for St. John's, that really was a defining moment for them in non-conference play, two of them, to their fan base to say, okay, while this hire was questioned, it gives you that confidence, Andrew, when you get a win like that or a couple wins like that, it says, okay, it can be done. This guy is right for us. Now, they've started one and five in a Big East conference where all 10 teams are in the top 90 of the net rankings. When you're playing in that type of league, and you're St. John's, who is picked in the bottom two of the league. They were picked ninth in the Big East. It's, it's going to be tough in this league to rack up wins. It's frustrating for St. John's. They had Seton Hall on their heels on Saturday. Seton Hall with a top 15 net would have been a third quadrant one win. And St. John's is a 12-17, and 17, could easily be 13-6 and six if they win that game. They, they were up by 13 at the half, couldn't hang on. But Mike Anderson has never had a losing season as a head coach. And I said this when he was hired. In the amount of time that Mike Anderson has won nine NCAA tournament games, that comes in the last 19 years, St. John's has won zero. They haven't won one as a program. When you look at that pedigree, I don't care what you think or or what, what your opinion is, Mike Anderson knows how to get to the NCAA tournament and win. And St. John's is in a two-decade tournament win drought. I think this guy is the right hire. But I think, to your point, what, is, what do the fans think? They think that he's the right guy as well. He kind of fell into St. John's lap. They were looking at Porter Moser from Loyola, Chicago. They were looking at Tim Clewis from Iona. And Mike Anderson, when you think about it, Andrew, he came from Arkansas. He came from a better program than those two and had done some winning there and was let go by the Razorbacks. But I think he's got a chip on his shoulder here at St. John's. It might be off to a slow start in conference play. I still think they can get to the NIT. And when you consider they were picked at the bottom of their conference, that would be a step forward for them heading into next year in the future. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of winning, too, at Missouri, putting together some of the best teams in program history uh, at Missouri. All right, John, always a pleasure. Uh, Thanks for coming back on. Hopefully we can get you sometime around March Madness uh, to kind of put a bow on the season there. Enjoy the rest of the season and, and safe travels this week. Andrew, always great to join you. Thanks for having me. Chase A.K.D., Richmond VA, back on the High Motor Podcast, and we're shifting gears to college basketball talk here because we've done so much college football betting talk over the last four and a half, five months. And, sir, I want to start with a question that I actually just asked you uh, yesterday when you fed me some bets for the for the day of college basketball. And I asked you if you ever buy points. You said not in basketball. Why not and what sports should people actually consider buying points yeah in basketball there's really just no reason to if you really want to get deep into the math of gambling you can find these tables that say like okay if if you're if you're betting x situation and you're betting plus six what your odds are of covering versus plus six and a half versus plus seven or if you're betting a total what betting an under on a 135 college basketball total is versus 135 and a half versus 136. The, the 
percentages that half a point or a point gives you in a spread or a total in college basketball is so minuscule that you're not really adding any value by picking up a point. Like in in college basketball, there's not much of a difference between six and a half and seven. In football, there's a huge difference between six and a half and seven. So it might be worth your time to buy half a point. I'll give you a great example from recently. I had a position in uh, wildcard weekend. I had a position on the Bills-Texans game. I had Bills plus three. And I really thought about buying that half point. I didn't do it, but I thought this is a game before the game kicked off. I thought this is a game where three and a half versus three really might make a difference. And and I ended up being correct. Now, I still made money on that game because when Buffalo went up 13 to zero at halftime, then I bet Houston minus four for the second half so that I was insulating myself against a comeback, which is what happened. But if I had bought that extra point on the front end of the game, that I would have hit both sides of that bet that I set up. Right. So it's almost like a sucker play. It's people like I'm not. I'm not a, an avid better. I'm not a sharp by any means, obviously. So when I look at that, and I'm kind of jumping into betting again for the first time in, in several years here. And I remember when I first started, maybe five or six years ago. I don't. I can't remember if I actually bought points, but it always seemed like a great idea. But it seems like what you're saying. It's just another sucker play. This is why these sites exist. This is why casinos exist because to the average fan, it's like, hell yeah, give me three more points. I feel way better about it. Yeah. It, well, if if you want to, most gamblers will tell you like in certain spots by half a point, you know, or, or by a point, maybe it, the contextually in very specific scenarios, that extra little bump might be nice, but in basketball, like you don't you don't ever want to go buy like five points, right? Because now you're you're not talking about buying points. What you want to do is a teaser, or you want to do a, a parlay of some kind. But you don't ever just want to make a straight bet where you buy five points and you're betting like minus one eighty. Because like, what's the point at that point? You're not even betting a spread anymore. You're you're creating like a weird bet. So looking at college basketball each week, or, or even here today, we were just talking about this before we hopped on. There isn't one top twenty five team in action. Uh, the most notable, the headliner game today, Minnesota Rutgers. Again, we're talking here on Sunday, two potential tourney teams. But I think that we can safely assume that most fans haven't watched several or even a few Minnesota Rutgers games this year. And then the other, there's, I don't know, 14 or 15 games on schedule for today. Again, Sunday, a lot of teams that either people haven't watched this year or barely watched at all, maybe caught a game, maybe a half, something like that. So for those who still want to make some bets on these games, a game like today. Yes, this is a little bit different because we have championship weekend in the NFL. A lot of people will be focusing uh, their money and resources on that. But still, if they they want to bet a few uh, games like a day like today or any other games where there there aren't that many headliners, what is your advice for bettors? I mean, how can they make money off off of these teams, Grand Canyon, South Dakota State, Illinois State, or even Minnesota Rutgers? How can they find value in these games for teams they don't even really know anything about? Well, I've always been a really big fan of Moneyline parlays where you're leveraging the the math and the multiplicative factors of multiple favorites in your favor, you know, to create maybe a three or four team parlay that has plus odds. You have to be careful. You got to do your homework. Uh, I I look for teams. I I try to avoid anything past like 275 on Ken Palm because once you get there, even if it's even if a team is favored, you're talking about a team that's so bad and, and in the bottom 20, 15% of college football, uh, college basketball, that it's not going to be surprising if they, you know, play under 
you know, if they underperform, if they play down to a level of competition, I try to stay away from that. And, and I actually, uh, I, I sent you a bet uh, a few weeks ago where we had a, I had a parlay and then I was just kind of trying to throw it together at the last minute. And then I went and took a nap and I woke up and the parlay had folded. And it's because I, I included a team. It was like Bethune Cookman or, or it was, it was somebody. I think it was like army at Buffalo and, and Buffalo was a, a heavy favorite. I think it was I'm like thinking of a different one. Yeah. That, that. But it's just like you don't want to go all the way down there. You don't want to reach all the way down there if you don't have to. Uh, so that's one thing I would think of. And the other the other advice, and I think this is good advice for parlays, but also just for just in general for college basketball, do not rely on a team's reputation from previous years when you're talking about mid majors. They they are going to be massively overvalued. And what I mean by that is UMBC beats UVA. UMBC was favored in like 14 of their first 15 games the next year. They had an awful record against the spread because everybody was betting UMBC. And UMBC just had one good team in one year. You know, last year, if you go and look at the first two months of last season for uh, Loyola of Chicago, their record against the spread was garbage because they were overinflated and everybody wanted to bet them anyway because of the Final Four run and they just got massacred. So... You got to be really careful about thinking you know a team because you recognize them from like a high profile March Madness run. Those don't carry over from year to year, and you are going to be paying monster extra when it comes to taking a position on a team like that. The spread's going to be extra. The the juice is going to be extra. It's bad. Before we hopped on, you you were just you said you were looking at the line or the, the records for Davidson and Fordham, and we're now. I think we're 12 years, yeah, we're 12 years removed from that Davidson Elite Eight team, but yet still, Davidson, I know that they've been consistent over the last 12 years, but we are so far removed from Steph Curry and so far removed from that Elite Eight team that was a shot away from making it to the Final Four. Do people still actually think that way 12 years later that they see Davidson, or does that have more to do with how consistent they've been over those 12 years? I think 12 years later, it, it probably... You know, it's it's sort of washed out. You know, I don't think people are still talking about how the University of Richmond went on a great run, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. Uh, I, I don't – I think George Mason probably is, is sort of saddled away finally from, from 13 or 14 years ago. It, there is an expiration date on some of that, but I think a lot of people like to come back like the very next year and think they have an angle on something. And mid-majors just don't produce great teams year after year after year. They have nice senior classes, you know, where, where they are beating up on these teams that, that are depleted from all this one and done and, or two and done. And they, they have nice years. It's one year. It's one good run. And then if you come back the next year and try to hammer it again, it, it doesn't – it very rarely works out. Going back to the last thing for you, going back to the parlay, you mentioned that you rarely go above, I think you said like 275, and then the one that I brought up that you weren't talking about, but still, I brought it up, I think it was like two weeks ago when you when you fed that to me, I think it was Army Buffalo, but I'm not sure, yeah, and then Army went up to Buffalo and, and just shot outrageously from three-point range and ended up winning, I think they were like, um, like plus 900 or something, and I think after that game, you said I should never have included that, I don't even know why I did, where is your limit there do you stop at plus five six or seven and i can't remember what they were i think it was like plus eight or nine hundred where do you stop there generally with that um so what you're talking about is uh in- including really heavy favorites so that i can't remember if it was that game or another game but there there was a game and i, I crashed out of a parlay 
And it was be, it was a team that was like minus 1,400 or minus 1,600 that was in the parlay. And the argument against including teams like that, which is what you're talking about, is the the they're such heavy favorites, you would need to include you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, minus 1,500 teams in order to get good turnaround on this, uh, in order to, to have the math in your favor. And when you're including that many teams in a parlay, you're just setting yourself up. So I try to find smaller amounts of teams that are at better, uh, more modest favorite status uh, to include in these parlays. And it's worth mentioning, a lot of old school gamblers think all of this is silly. Like a lot of old school people who are like previous generations of gamblers would listen to me talk about this and go, oh, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Like that's, that's not a winning strategy. This is a very new school thing that, you know, this is what a lot of like pro gamblers in their 20s and 30s do. If you go talk to the old guard, they will laugh you out of the building if you start talking about parlays like this. So this is sort of, you know, this, this is a new strategy that a lot of people uh, are maybe looking to now. And I do think if you, if you know what you're doing and you're cautious and you're conservative and you really dive into the numbers, you can make the math work in your favor. But there are a lot of people that are more old school that would say that you can't. A reminder that you can always hit up Chase on Twitter at Chase A. Kitty. He'll do his best to answer your betting questions at Chase A. Kitty or send them through the pod. We'll get it to him at High Motor Pod. And Chase and I will be back soon. Uh, I'll be back very soon with some more guests working on a really, really strong one that I hope is going to come through. So stay tuned for that one. If you didn't catch Mike Leach last week, I recommend you go back and do so. Available on your podcast app, available everywhere. Thanks for dropping by the High Motor Podcast. Country Road. Take me home.